There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. Today, is economics really a science? Really? I mean, we have a Nobel Prize for economic science. Uh, we tend to study a BSc in economics. But is economics really a science? Can we compare it with the laws of motion or looking at how living cells operate? Well, Steve, I look for a definition of science and I found this, that science is the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. I mean, does that sound like economics to you? <laughs> um, not by a long shot. Um, but there's, there's a couple of it. There's one element we certainly can't do, and that's experiment. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, we're talking, you said the natural and physical world, because we're talking the social world. And it's true, as, as people often argue, that there's no way that economics can emulate the physical sciences, and they argue that therefore it shouldn't attempt to. But there's one thing about the physical sciences which has come out of the whole practice of science, and that is a level of dispassionate interest in the nature of the system you're analysing. You don't actually necessarily want, uh, for example, the sky to always be blue. You want, uh, you want to understand what's the process that generates storms, but you don't have this preference for blue skies all the time. And, of course, in economics, the analogy I'm making is that there's such a strong ideological element to the way people actually approach the fact that it's not a science. And they then say, well, uh, we need to... Uh, you, you, you have to have an ideological position. And, frankly, my own feeling about it is that I, I would like to at least move in the direction of the sciences because... Uh, one of the most one of the most wrong things Marx ever said was that uh, philosophers hitherto have attempted to understand the world. The purpose the, the purpose is to change it. In fact, it hasn't been Marxists have been successful at that. It's been neoclassical economists who've tried to turn the world into what they think uh, it should be in their textbooks. Mm. And there's a level of intervention in how economists behave towards the economy, which has never happened in the physical world. Though I must say, there are signs of this happening. Uh, do you remember our, our dear friend Malcolm Turnbull uh, coming out recently saying that the laws of mathematics are commendable, but the laws of Australia apply? Um, oh. So maybe 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 a politician wants to change the laws of mathematics that so they are, uh, take second place to the laws of the laws of the uh, Ameri uh, Australian Parliament. Um, but in in that sense, the whole idea that you can do that is, is sheer nonsense in the physical sciences. But because economists come with ideological visions of how the economy should operate, a large part of what we get is economic policies. Like people actually trying to make the real world more like their textbook version of the world than it actually is in the first instance. Well, the question and is how to the extent. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. question is how do you get in the textbook in the first place if, if it's not, not a proven science? Because, so, I mean, scientists do obviously come at something with a, a, a position. They, you know, they have a hypothesis, then they test it with experimentation, which, as you said, is one of the problems. Because how can you experiment? Uh, because, mm. uh, you know, because unless you're experimenting with a lot of people, then, of course, you draw your conclusions. Then you look for a peer appraisal to confirm it's an, it's an acceptable conclusion. Again, that is, a, that is a long way from the way that economics operates. Well, I mean, the, the question of how science itself operates was a very important one that um, we tried to understand how do we get to the position of, of sciences developing in the first place. And the very first vision of that was given, uh, not the very first vision, but the one that was dominant for some time was Karl Popper's vision. Of, uh, it was called uh, logical positivism, but he actually re- rejected that, that label himself. But he basically said people don't observe, they start with the theory, they start with a hypothesis. They, they boldly conjecture uh, some particular vision. And then his idea was, after that, they go about trying to contradict that very vision and disprove it. Mm. So the nature of a scientist was somebody who put a proposition forward and then attempt to destroy it. Uh, and in the process of destroying it, uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't prove that an idea was right, but you could prove that elements of it were wrong. And what you do over time is whittle away the myth and increase the amount of science in, in presence in the discipline. And that was how science evolved according to Popper. Now, when that was uh, a, a PhD student in the, in the philosophy of science, uh, um, oh, got on my mind, uh, Thomas Kuhn attempted to apply that to the evolution of astronomy. And his vision was you started with a set of myths, you know, the myth being, for example, that the, um, the Earth is the centre of the universe and the sun is carried around uh, in an orbit by a chariot with, uh, with seven, seven horses leading it, et cetera, et cetera. And then you, so that's the myth stage of science, and then you gradually progress to the stage where, where uh, science comes to a dominant, where you get the Copernican view. And when Popper tried, or when, when, when Kuhn tried to apply that to the behaviour of Ptolemaic astronomers, it made no sense whatsoever because he found them doing very careful calculations, very careful observations, um, building a very elaborate, um, uh, behaving in other words, like scientists are perceived as behaving today. Not like myth builders, they weren't uh, using, uh, you know, mythological visions. They were trying to very precisely calculate uh, the orbits of the planets based on the model that they had. And so what what Kuhn realised was that Popper's vision of how scientists behave uh, wasn't at all accurate. Uh, so what had instead happened is they would have a an organising view of how they thought a particular physical system worked they would then become committed to that view. That would become what Kuhn called their paradigm. And they would then attempt to extend the paradigm as uh, to explain more and more elements than the initial observation, for example, of the sun orbiting the earth or you know, rising in the east and setting in the west every day, and then explain why the planets went in opposite directions on occasion. So that's where the idea of epicycles came in. And then they couldn't quite get the orbits right with circular orbits so they brought in what are called equant motions they moved the center of the universe slightly away from the earth etc uh, etc et highly elaborate process uh, but what he said would bring them unstuck was the occurrence of anomalies they couldn't explain right. and the classic anomaly for them was their organizing vision had perfection in the heavens and decay on earth and then when galileo uh, first took uh, first built the first 
functional uh, telescope uh, and observed the moon, he saw craters on the moon. And craters clearly implied that things had collided uh, with the moon and therefore there wasn't perfection in the heavens because things were smashing into each other. Right. Now, that, that um, meant that the, there was a, a scientific crisis out of which arose the Copernican vision that the Earth was uh, orbited the sun. It wasn't the centre of the universe anymore. And you get this process where scientists are committed to a particular view, push the view as far as it, as it will go, start to accumulate a bunch of anomalies, which they can't explain using the paradigm, and the anomalies will then lead to a crisis in the science, which is often resolved by movement to a new paradigm, which is to some degree incommensurable with the one that went beforehand. So, of course, in the case of Copernicus' as vision, uh, there was no uh, way in which you could... Uh, make you know, nuanced comparisons between the Ptolemaic vision where the Earth was the centre of the universe and the Copernican one where the Sun was. So, uh, in other words, it was very hard for you. There's no way Copernicus could build on the foundations created by the Ptolemaic ones. It had to be a complete replacement. So that's that's been the process of advancements of science. And economics has been very, very similar to that. The difference is that there is no effective way to contradict the neoclassical vision 99% of the time it takes a financial crisis before the vision of a that they have of a self-equilibrating uh, money doesn't matter uh, stable equilibrium system subject to exogenous shocks falls over in a financial crisis so otherwise we, they can continue building the myth right okay and they are building so they have been building a myth you think it's exactly the same way that they have basically uh, applied a, a lot of scientific principles in or at least applied a lot of logic and a lot of work and tried to change the paradigm to suit their to suit their vision uh and creating very complex models in the process because i mean you know some economists have very complicated models uh but again they've been fine-tuned uh to support the thought paradigm which is how they see the universe operating yeah and that's why they get defended by being told they're not a science because so far as they're concerned, they're doing what sciences do. And to the extent to which the, the science is developing a paradigm and then extending it, making it apply to more and more areas, modifying it to fit the data and so on, that is what scientists do. So they're offended by being told they're not being scientific. Now, so what the, the real uh, reason that you can say that they're not being scientific is they don't, uh, they're more effective at preventing the scientific revolutions that have occurred in other disciplines than... than uh, so it says economics has managed to prevent these revolutions, whereas they've occurred in other disciplines. And as esoteric as they might appear, if you look at the, a modern dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model, if you look at the underlying precepts of that model, that the economy is stable, then any disturbance for a shock you return to equilibrium, uh, that there's uh, utility maximising consumers on one side of the equation, profit maximising firms on the other, uh, that vision is something which Marshall or Volra or Jevons could look at and say, yes, I understand that, I accept that. Now, on the other hand, if you took a, a 1870s physicist and showed them quantum mechanics, they'd go, what the hell have you been smoking? Where mm. the hell did this come from? What's happened to my stable orbits? What's this idea of, um, of uh, uncertainty, etc., etc.? So there's, there's a capacity to repel new ideas and stick with the existing paradigm in economics that does not apply in other sciences. And that makes it so capable of, of failing that ultimate test of being capable to have a, a scientific revolution. 
So I can understand, I mean, you made the point that, you know, a scientist really should, if they start with a, a, a paradigm or a position, the first thing they should do is try and pull it apart. Because in pulling it no. apart, you don't, you don't no. think... Cause no. I, cause, no, I don't. Because if you... Well, just the, the, let me finish on this point then, because I would okay, have thought yeah, if, yeah. if you do try and pull it apart, aren't you going to find those mistakes, those... Those, those factors that you're choosing to ignore as you expand on all the things that you're comfortable with. If, you, if you're forced to look around and explore what could possibly be wrong with your position, um, then yeah, you're, well, you're, not the, gonna, the, you're not going to be able to extend it and make all yeah, those mistakes. There's a, the, there's a difference between the actual discipline having that effect and individual scientists behaving in that fashion. And this is, the, again, Popper made a, a very common mistake of... Uh, of extrapolating, of, of effectively interpolating the behaviour of the collective of science to the personality of individual scientists. So what you will find with individual scientists, and this applies in any discipline, including physics, uh, that they will they will have a vision which they're confident about, and they will push that vision um, forward. So string theory, um, quantum gravity. Um, um, a, a range of you know, electrochromodynamics, a various range of different theories they'll work on. They believe that, that accurately describes the, the the part of the universe they're they're attempting to explain with their approach to science, and then they will do experiments to attempt to prove that that's correct, and they'll get anomalies coming out of those attempts to prove that they're correct. Right. And then it's admitting admitting what what is what sets science aside from how economics is behaved is admitting yes we found some anomalies here. So the classic anomaly in physics, the, the probably the most important in the history of physics, uh, was the what's called black body radiation problem back in the late 1900, the 19th century, uh, where the Maxwell's model of uh, electromagnetism, which was you know, an incredible advance in its own right, uh, uh, when that was applied to the amount of energy which would be transmitted from a, a black body, in other words, a body which you know, you and I are effectively black bodies. We're radiating temperatures at a temperature about 300 degrees Kelvin, 300 degrees above absolute zero. The radiation would either be, according to Maxwell's model, it would either be infinite at low frequency or infinite at high frequency. In fact, there was a like a hill shape. And when Planck attempted... So that was an acknowledged anomaly. The, the, the dominant theory could not explain the experimental observation. It was well, well known. And then Max Planck solved it by doing what's called integration in the complex plane. And out of that, followed out the idea of Planck's constant, which is the energy come in small discrete units called quanta. Now, that was a, a hell of a shock to physicists, and they actually resisted it. But as, first of all, the anomaly was admitted to, they didn't like the solution, but... The, and they stuck with their own their own argument. The Maxwellian physicists uh, uh, never really gave way, and Max Planck was the one who came up with that wonderful statement that science advances one funeral at a time. But what would happen when the new ones came along? They'd accept this as a solution to the anomaly, and the new physics of quantum mechanics evolved out of that. Now that's what economics doesn't do. Mm. Um, it, it 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 has that same effectively religious um, devotion to an idea. It anomalies will arise it often will deny that the anomalies actually exist so of course the financial crisis was not an anomaly it was an exogenous shock that's the only way they can explain it in their model and then they retreat back and come out again 30 years later with the same philosophies probably even more extreme than the original case and that's what i see as the unscientific aspect of economics the inability to allow 
uh, a scientific revolution. Funerals aren't enough in economics. But it, can it ever be a, a, a true science, though? Because it, let's look at those anomalies. I mean, they uh, mm-hmm. if you're looking at it and you're trying to prove uh, something, something very basic like gravity, for example. I mean, gravity doesn't change once you've proven it exists you you know you're sort of okay job done but in economics uh you know it it involves the human world and it keeps changing so the anomaly that you've spotted could be because of a circumstance that you couldn't comprehend wouldn't factor into your into your calculations and uh you might think you fixed it but it might be because that uh that other factor has has gone away so your conclusion could be wrong and that could keep on happening i mean it's it's not exact is it because it involves human beings and uh and we're not exact things but we've got exactly the same thing applies if you take a look at evolution and biology hmm Okay, so it's potential. There's nobody's going to argue that evolutionary biology is not a science, um, and in in that case, evolutionary biology does allow revolutions. So, for example, if you look at the um, if you read the Richard Dawkins side of the world, and I've got a very good man having dinner with later on tonight, who's a great fan of Richard Dawkins. Um, I'm not. Uh, Dawkins is somebody who argued what they call the blind watchmaker approach that uh, evolution occurs because you have random changes and those random changes uh, lead to um, phenotypic variation that mean that particular uh, characteristics survive and others get wiped out by the environment and that's how evolution occurs so it's a blind watchmaker Uh, but there's been research to show that evolution actually accelerates under various circumstances and to some extent the organism appears in a Lamarckian sense to be choosing uh, what's likely to survive so there was research done by a a, a biologist at the famous world-famous University of Wollongong um, some decades ago uh, where he exposed uh, E. coli bacteria in different petri dishes to different saturations of lactose, there was a known rate of evolution of the uh, of an enzyme that enabled those bacteria to survive the lactose, otherwise it was a poison for them. And the rate of evolution of that uh, variation was faster in the petri dishes where there was already an exposure to um, to lactose than the petri dishes where there was not. So it's not a blind watchmaker. Now we're now getting explanations why that happens. There's a wonderful book, if anybody hasn't seen it uh, yet, an interesting theory called Quantum Evolution by a guy called John Joe McFadden that explains some of the mechanisms that are thought to lie behind it and they happen to be quantum mechanical ex- explanations. But that that type of capacity to accept a change you now find in evolutionary biology it's quite a quite okay to say that there is a role in which the organism to some itself um, can enhance its rate of evolution um, so those sorts of capacities to change the underlying paradigm uh, exist in sciences which just like economics uh, about things which don't remain constant, which do change, which evolve under the force of the organism. So I think I, I, I'm 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 co- I'm not confident, but I have the ambition that at least we can be slightly more dispassionate about capitalism and not wish to reach a particular set of um, teleological conclusions about it as Austrians do at one extreme and Marxists at the other and neoclassicals in the middle. Um, let's just try to describe the damn thing. Right. So you believe the the difference between economics and science, and uh, and what could make economics accepted as a science, is this continual quest to try and prove or disprove and question basic principles, like a scientist would in 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 any other discipline. 
Just to accept anomalies exist. I mean, like I, I, the, the, the way in which neoclassicals say, look, the financial crisis wasn't an anomaly because it was an exogenous shock. For Christ's sake, grow up. Um, it was something you didn't expect. You were triumphant that it wouldn't happen anymore. It happened. You have to have an explanation. And calling exogenous shock just isn't good enough. That's what the sort of stuff that Chris Giles does back in uh, back in England, uh, very very recently. Whereas Nariana Karshalakota, and, and I did my captain Nariana in the front, the ex. Uh, president of the federal reserve came out and said we can't we can't use that explanation anymore it was something we didn't expect um it's lasted much longer than we thought we have to admit there's something wrong with our paradigm right. so that 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 sort of behavior has to happen more in economics and it's equal i mean i, I had a conference in northern china recently and i'm very much like the bloke i'm about to criticize here uh, but uh, one of the other speakers there al is a great fan of the cuban model of socialism and was really not willing to admit that there were um, problems and how it had worked out and that these problems were endemic. And there's this, this teleological element that people have this vision of what a perfect society is and that colours how they react to the occurrence of anomalies or even the meaning that they do exist. Um, it's, it's a weakness which we simply have to get away from. And it's very hard. This is, this is um, again, one of the things about scientists. People think scientists are very different to people who believe in you know, religious uh, people, people who believe in a god. I think they're very, very similar uh, because we are fundamentally what we are, are belie- we're creatures who can share beliefs. And we can then, by sharing those beliefs, we can elaborate upon those beliefs. So we've got far more complex um, mythologies than I think any other creature is likely to have. Probably whales have a mythology, but we'll, we may one day know what that is, but it's unlikely to be as complicated as our mythologies are. Um, and science is a form of that mythology. In that sense, Popper was right. But we have the capacity to challenge that mythology as well. And what economics has done is build the mythology without having the capacity to challenge it. So you think when whales are communicating with each other, making those uh, those deep grumbling noises under the ocean, they're probably not discussing economic theory. Uh, let's hope not anyway, for their sake. Uh, they've probably got better things to talk about. But, the, but let's look at laws, because we do have laws in economics, which seem to be sort of accepted laws. Um, and yet some of those might be wrong. How did they get to be laws? It's, and why aren't they? When, when somebody's talking about a law in, in science, they mean something which is absolutely unbreakable. Now, economics is, again, it's aggrandized itself to talk about laws in that sense. It shouldn't even allow the term. Yeah. All right. Okay. One other thing about economics, which I guess is different from science, is that it's um, it gets waylaid by politics, doesn't it? You know, it, economics tends to be related to, mm. to government policy, unlike most science. Uh, the outcomes relate to us all in a very short time frame, so we all have a vested interest in it. So it can't, mm. even if it wanted to, it probably couldn't operate as a pure science because politics gets in the way. Yeah, and that's, again, one reason I try to be somewhat distant from politics in general, because uh, if you side too much with one party or the other, you're likely to be undermined by what actually happens in the way your policy is implemented, even if it's a sensible one. So, for example, I'm helping, uh, I've got to draft something for uh, advice to the, the Corbyn um, uh, Corbyn's uh, party in the UK shortly, but I'd happily draft something for the Conservatives as well, uh, because uh, taking a leaf out of Maggie Thatcher's book once more, one thing her advisor once said was he wasn't going to be confident, I wasn't going to be happy when there's a Conservative party in power. I'd be happy when there are two Conservative parties vying for power. No, I'd be happy when there are two parties that understand monetary dynamics vying for power. Uh, the Conservatives on one side and Labour on the other. And so I'd happily uh, give advice to the Conservatives about how they 
understand the world when they realize that uh, banks and governments create money rather than um, rather than money being uh, money being gold which is the mythology most of them appear to operate with so uh, but yeah getting politics caught in the middle of the whole thing having a political position uh, equally uh, weakens the claim that economics has of being a science let me give you a quote to finish off with and see whether this is on the ball or not and if not, where does it fall apart? This is uh, from Hayek in uh, Individualism and Economic Order. He said, the theories of the social sciences do not consist, um, I'm not sure whether he's including economics in this, but the theories of the social sciences do not consist of laws in the sense of empirical rules about behavior of objects definable in physical terms. All that the theory of the social sciences attempts to do is to provide a technique of reasoning which assists us in connecting individual facts, but which, like logic or mathematics, is not about the facts. It can, therefore, and this is the second point, never be verified or falsified by reference to facts. That That is one of the great errors of the Austrians because, effectively, they, they have this idea of, uh, of um, not being able to, to challenge uh, observations. They say that you can't, it's not an empirical science, you can't empirically validate it, empirically challenge it. And they said it because it's about human action. Uh, I've forgotten the actual phrase, but uh, praxeology, I think they call it. And this ends up being a way of insulating them from criticism. Right. And it's, it's equally used out, by Marxists at other extremes. So, yeah, I mean, I. Um, th- there, there are empirical regularities. There are, there, are, there are things which can contradict your beliefs. If you don't admit the possibility of them, then you are, again, that is the behaviour of the mythology rather than the behaviour of a science. And I guess we do it to animals, don't we? I mean, you know, we'll study the behaviour of animals and, uh, and call that a science. So it's strange that we wouldn't uh, treat the behaviour of humans. In the same way. Well, it's not just the behaviour. The behaviour is constrained. I've, I finished up a. We had a. a the. Me, I think I mentioned it. The Economic and Social Research Council in the UK has uh, made a grant of about four billion, four million pounds available to promote non-orthodox economics, and it's being handled by the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, and handled rather well, I might say, uh, by them. And at the end of the last meeting on. Uh, is the economy inherently unstable, which I was one of the speakers at. I finished up with a quote from one Karl Marx that most of the audience had never heard before. Uh, And that was where he said, men make their own history, but not of time and in circumstances of their own choosing. They make it constrained by the institutions of the, the present and the history of the past. And those constraints are a large part of what shapes what's possible for human behaviour. The whole idea that you can have human behaviour without the subject, without the constraints of history and institutions is just wrong. But that's a large part of that Austrian praxeology way of thinking. Now, there are so many different camps, aren't there, in economics? So is the answer then mm. for this for there to be an acceptance? If, 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 if it wants to be seen as a science, then each one of these, it's okay to hold your position. But you've got to, you've got to debate it and you've got to... Uh, share your arguments and share your data and work together to try and find out who's right on what. I think that's what I'm. That's that's the current position that I'm largely supportive. I mean, I think I, I, I think I'm capable of bringing about a degree of integration on those different schools uh, to some extent, which I'm going to attempt to do in the next five or so years. But fundamentally, at the moment, given the disarray economics is in admitting that there are these various different approaches which all have their own given the weakness of each of the rivals each of them has their own sense of validity as well it's about time students learnt the extreme range of views and we started pulling something worthwhile together out of it all and in in that particular in this particular case admit there's been a massive anomaly 
uh, and admit that that anomalies, both of those centrally planned anomalies back in the collapse of the Berlin Wall right through to the financial collapse of 2008, admit them, let's see what the overall range of visions people have had and out of that pull out something which is not completely blinkered and gives us a potential sensible perspective to describe this complex creature we call capitalism. Right. Well, look, hey, when you've done that, when you've figured out which school or which schools of economics are right, maybe you can figure out which is the right religion. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, that might I be mean, an easier one. That comes up, you, know, you and I, have a, we both know Mike Carlton, of course, the Australian humorist. And Mike Carlton once summarised his perspective on religion of saying, so you have this, mar- uh, 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 we get in- visited by uh, foreign uh, intelligence, uh, extraterrestrial intelligence, he watches an argument and says, so what you're saying is that your imaginary friend is better than his imaginary friend and they're the same friend. <laughs> I'm out of here. Bye-bye. <laughs> That's why we've not been inv- invaded by extraterrestrials, clearly. Indeed. They, they oh. can't stand up the level of argument that we're not sophisticated enough for them yet. Exactly. That's right. We haven't even figured out economics yet. All right. Very good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll catch you again soon. Thanks, Steve. Okay, mate. Bye-bye. And look, next time, energy and growth. Steve believes the availability of energy is not just a key driver of economic growth. It's the only essential element of economic growth. Without it, economies can't grow. So does that mean, conversely, if energy becomes more expensive, economies start to contract? And what does that mean for government policy? We'll look at that next time on the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. 